Thank you for having me. My name is Cameron Mullins. Uh, my wife, Caitlin, and I have been supported missionaries of DBC uh, since 2009. And so that puts us then in our 10-year anniversary. Uh, and so when you have now been a missionary for 10 years, then they'll probably ask you to preach as well. So you can look forward to that as you put your picture in that box. Um, so uh, this is my 10th uh, missions uh, weekend. We used to call them the missions conference, but we don't call it that anymore. And so if I say that, just know we're talking about this time. But it's a, it's a weekend every year, in case you're new, that, that DBC uh, carves out some time to focus on the work of missions, uh, both locally and around the world, and also to put focus on the missionaries that they have so uh, faithfully supported, some of them for a very long time. And so this morning, because of the missions conference weekend, uh, because it's the missions weekend, uh, we're going to take part of this morning time uh, to look at a classic missionary passage uh, told by Jesus himself about the Good Samaritan. Um, and in the second half, uh, Brian and, and Aaron have uh, asked me to share uh, about what For the Nations is and some opportunities that we have in this area to serve our refugee neighbors. And so to keep the message short, we're only going to be asking one question from our text this morning, the Good Samaritan, uh, which is going to be in Luke 10. I'd like to start uh, turning there. Uh, in Luke 10, we're only going to be asking one question, which is, who are you in this story of the Good Samaritan? Now, when I come back to DBC, uh, this is a very important question for me and for all of us missionaries because uh, many of your faces are new to us and we see the question in your eyes. You're looking at us saying, who are you? I might have seen your picture around. I can't quite remember because uh, for me, uh, if, if this is your first time meeting me, you will probably get to know me as the refugee guy uh, and, and that's fine. But if you've been here, uh, if, you're, if you're a little bit of a veteran, then you might remember uh, back when I was in seminary in here uh, that I was the assistant youth pastor uh, before that. But for some of you, when you look at me and ask, who are you? you, you remember me from before that, if you're an older veteran, that I used to be the facilities manager here for three years. And I had the office in the back corner there that no one knew was there or an office. Try to find it. Good luck. Um, <laughs> And if for the most veteran here, then you'll remember me as uh, an 18-year-old part-time janitor um, here, finishing up at Pierce High School and, and regularly sleeping on the couches out in the youth building. Uh, so who are you is a very important question, uh, and it's the one that we are going to focus on our passage today. And so from Luke 10, verse 25, first I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we'll pray. All right. 25, Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert of the law, in the law, a lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and... Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, 
and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look, at, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Uh, thank you for saving us through his blood. Uh, and thank you that you are making us more like him uh, by your Holy Spirit. Uh, we ask you to change our hearts this morning uh, through your son and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So our story this morning starts out with a man looking for a loophole to the most important question in the universe, which is, how do I get eternal life? This is the lawyer's question, and this should be our question too. How do I get life forever? And Jesus, with ninja-like question-answering skills, turns the question back on him, and he says, well, how do you read it? And the lawyer, not backing down, stepping up to the plate, maybe a little pressure from the crowd around him, takes a stab at the answer, and he reaches for the easiest answer that a Jewish boy or girl could reach for. He reaches for the Shema, the, 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 the verse that every Jewish person memorized. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. I won't make you call out and repeat to me too much. Um, but I just want to make sure that you're awake. Um, okay, so the lawyer reaches for this and saying, love God, and he reaches to Leviticus and says, love your neighbor. Okay, so Jesus now, as the master of understatement, uh, says, you're right, do this and you'll live. And wouldn't that be like the worst evangelism like ever? If someone's like, hey, how do I get eternal life? And you're like, just love God and love others, you'll be fine. And so... Um, Jesus is about to leave it at that, okay? It's the lawyer who steps back up. He could have just walked away. He didn't. He could have just walked away, and he says, um, because uh, he has a problem. His community is watching him. They know that he hasn't loved God and loved his neighbor with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and so he wants to justify himself. And so he asks the question that jumps us into our story, and he says, um, Excuse me, Jesus, uh, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, with an almost, ah, I'm glad you asked, goes into a, uh, a long story. Now, 
my wife, she gives really short answers to questions. I give long ones, you know, but if they're good enough for Jesus, then they're good enough for me. So, so let's go on in. Um, so here he, he sets the stage of, um, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. So here's a man, and uh, from, from the context, he's Jewish. He's in the Jewish area, and this is what his crowd is that's listening to him. So the man that's walking, he's supposed to kind of represent the crowd, just a normal, everyday guy doing what people do, walking on the road. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And this would kind of make the people listening to the story say, aw, like, I hope that doesn't happen to me. Um, And so now you have the man on the side of the road. He has nothing. He's dirty. And if he's left in this condition, he will die. And so suddenly, now you're you're watching kind of your, your representation kind of lying here on the ground. Suddenly, the hero arrives on the, on the horizon. Can you see him riding a white horse? Suddenly, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And at this, the crowd is supposed to say, yay, the priest is here. Because the priest was supposed to be the representation, the physical representation of God on earth. He was supposed to be an example to everyone else. And so now here comes the priest And the Bible makes it very clear, Jesus makes it very clear, he sees the man, it's not an accidental oversight, he sees the man, and then what does he do? He goes to the other side of the street. Now, how do you think the guy on the side of the road feels watching this, right? Like, here comes someone, surely they'll help me. Oh, good, it's a priest, he'll do great. And then he watches this, what's he doing? He's going to the other side of the road. His religion isn't real, and I'm dead. So here comes the priest, goes to the other side of the road. And now we have our second hero showing up. Uh Uh-oh. So too, a Levite, who was like a tear down from the priest. And so kind of if the priest got a yay, then the Levite got a yay. But the crowd probably knows what's going to happen now. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Okay. So why are these men not helping? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. It's, it's a story. Um, and so, but we can kind of put onto it like they're important men. They have stuff to do, probably very important stuff to do. They, mean, they mean, may need to be going to, to teach somewhere kind of just like I'm doing this morning. And, and so they don't have time to help anyone. Or maybe they're scared that the man's already dead. And in, for the Jewish culture, under Jewish law, if you touch the, the dead man, you are unclean and it brings shame on your family. And so they, maybe they don't want to help the person because they're scared for themselves and for their family. And so they pass by on the other side of the road. But from... The guy on the side of the road's perspective, whose sin is worse? The robbers who beat him up and took his clothes or the priest and the Levite who didn't do anything? Well, you see, we all have this, this nasty habit of compartmentalizing sins into sins that are really bad, like robbing, 
and sins that aren't so bad, like not doing something. But the Bible is very clear that sin is sin, whether that's a committing a sin, a sin of commission, like you did something bad, or a sin of omission, meaning you saw the right thing to do and didn't do it. They're both sin. Good. Some of you wanted to say it, but you didn't know. Like, do I say it now? That's good. Okay. So they're both sin, and to this guy, both of them are going to cause his death. And so who are we in the story of the Good Samaritan? Well, if we're honest, we are the priests and the Levites and the robbers. We are supposed to be examples. We are supposed to be representations of Christ in helping people, but we don't. Sometimes through business practices and very direct things, we're causing the problems. But we certainly see problems and, and we stay off either to because we have other things to do or because we're scared of, of, um, of hurting ourselves or our families. And so we don't help other people. Um, and so we're constantly failing. And you, you need to know this about me. I have four children and they're going to, uh, talking about raising kids is going to work itself into me talking today because uh, as a parent, we sacrifice a lot. We're kind of always sacrificing. We're kind of always giving up of ourselves. But a lot of our self-sacrifice is actually to help ourselves. And so why do, we help, why do we teach kids to share? Well, so that they'll share back, to us, back with us. Why do we work hard at school and at our jobs? Well, so that we get recognition and possibly promotions and money. And why do we save for retirement? Well, so that we won't be a burden on those around us and so that we can be seen as, as having it all together. And so from birth to death, we are all very self-centered. And all of us are like the lawyer asking, okay, God, who is it mandatory that I help? And I'll help them. Is my kids. Who do I have to be there for? Who is my neighbor? And so, who are we in this story? Well, we are the priests. We are the Levites. We are the robbers. And why are we this way? Well, because we have sin. And we are, we are covered in this sin. And so, who will save us from our terrible, sinful, selfish selves? Well, that's when the hero of our story shows up. So let's keep reading. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. Now, the community, no one here gasped when we said the word Samaritan. <gasps> but the Samaritans were hated by their communities. There's lots of, of stories of, of the disciples in, in, like wanting to go around Samaria because no one liked them. They were a Gentile, they, uh, they were a Jewish community that had married in with Gentile blood and they followed a different religion and a different God. They weren't the, they, they weren't the people of God and all the Jews hated them because they kind of blamed them for the fact that Rome had come and taken them over. And so here the Samaritan comes up and everyone would have gasped. Okay, so one more time. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. Oh, thank you. 
timely, a little participation. And when the man was, and when he saw him, the crowd thinks, I bet he's going to kick him. But he doesn't. He took pity on him. And, when he, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. Okay. So this would be equivalent to, again, parent analogy. Sorry about this. But you're standing inside uh, and, and out the window you see your kids, your kids playing on the, uh, on, on the grass. And then suddenly a dog comes up a ferocious dog, and starts attacking your child. And then you see the policeman come by, and he does nothing. And then you see the fire truck come by, and they don't stop at all. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, a Daesh jumps out and fights off the dog and picks up your kid and brings him back to you. Okay, now nobody jumped when I said the word Daesh. No one gasped. But part of that's because you're not Iraqi. And so uh, our Iraqi students, uh, a Daesh is a fairly derogative term that they use to describe ISIS. So this would look like seeing your most hated enemy, and our Iraqi students, they hate ISIS because their families have been hurt, some of them killed by this community. And so they hate them. And so, okay, if Samaritan didn't make you jump, and if Daesh didn't do it for you, then you have to insert in the people group, or the peoples that you can't stand, the people that you think the world would be better without, the people that you might hate. So for some of you, that might be members of a certain political party. For some of you, that might be people, uh, possibly illegal immigrants. For some of you, it might be an, an abusive uh, person that you can think of, or, or a family member that you think the world would just be better without. Or maybe a mean teacher for you kids. This is the person that just you hate, possibly a Canadian. Um, <laughs> and so you're supposed to put this person in here. <laughs> and, and now the person that you hate is the one who is saving the day. He's come in. He's come down to someone who cannot help or save himself. And he has picked him up. And he has promised to take care of him, and he's promised to come back and make everything right. Does that story sound familiar at all? It should, because the good Samaritan is Christ. And that makes us the man on the side of the road. So look, I, I know I told you that we were the priests and Levites and, and robbers, and that was a fun time, but I was just joking. Who we actually are is we are the man on the side of the road. And because of our sin, because of Adam, is that we are helpless. We have nothing to bring to God. It's not like we're beautiful and cute and that's who Jesus came to rescue. He came to rescue bad people that do bad things and have nothing to bring to God. And Jesus promises to come and, and he takes care of them and he then promises to come back to them. And so... We are the man on the side of the road. And that means that the story of the Good Samaritan is more than just a moral lesson. In our ministry, we work with about 60% Islamic. And, uh, and, and if they read the story of the Good Samaritan, it, they walk away with, oh yeah, you should help people. But for the Christian, we have bigger eyes. We know the whole story. And we know that when, what Jesus is painting a picture of here is exactly what he's going to be doing for the people listening is that he's going to come 
and save them. And if you miss Jesus as the Good Samaritan and just see yourself as the hero, you've missed the whole point of the Bible of we're not the heroes. He is. So he's not just the Good Samaritan. He's the Great Samaritan. And who are we? We're the man on the side of the road. So now Jesus could, it ends the story there, and it's, it's back to the lawyer. And, and uh, Jesus asked the lawyer, now which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And the lawyer confidently answers, uh, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus now ends the story again with an impossible standard. Go and do likewise. And the crowd disperses, probably many of them with their jaws open. I can't believe he just talked so well of a Samaritan. Uh, probably many of them angry. Probably many of them confused. And many of them leave hearing Jesus say words without ever really hearing that what he's promising to do is to save them. And they believe that he's real, they see him as a person, but they don't believe in him as the one who is totally God, who is totally man, who has come to save them from their sins. And so while seeing, they don't see, and while hearing, they don't hear, and they go back home. But some of them do believe. Some of them, by the Holy Spirit, have faith and trust Jesus as their great Samaritan, as the one who can save them from their sin. And as Jesus ascends in, uh, in Matthew and in Acts, he then tells his disciples and those who have come to follow him who believe, he then sends them out, not just to one country, but to all the peoples. But he gives some dark promises. He says, hey, guess what? They, they hated me. They're going to hate you too. If they killed me... You're in for it. But I'm sending you out to the least and the lost, to the people who have never heard the good news. And you're going to go down and you're going to reach out to them with the gospel and you're going to get them into church and I'm going to come back and make everything new. And so does this sound familiar? It should. Because who are we in the story of the Good Samaritan? Well, look, I... I know I told you that we are the priests and, and the Levites and the robbers, and, and that was a good time. And then I told you that we are the man on the side of the road, and, and we had fun while we were there too. But because of Christ and his work and the sending of the Holy Spirit, now we are the good Samaritan. Now our identity is in Christ, and now he has sent us out to the world. Um, but th this wouldn't be my first choice, right? If I was God, this wouldn't be my plan because the problem is we're all sinners. And so it's like, God, don't, no, don't send us out. Like, just send Christ back. Like, he was great. We have a lot of problems. We fight. We get into different groups just so we can fight each other. Um, always believing that our, our group is certainly the best. And uh, we lie, we steal, we do everything the robbers and, and Levites do and, and worse. God, you're going to use us? But God's ways are not my ways, thank God. 
And what he has promised is that, yes, his gospel and good news will be going out to the world. And it's going to be through us. He's going to use sinful people, and he's going to make us into good Samaritans. And what our job is going to be is to go to people that have nothing and point them back to the great Samaritan. So, who are we in the story of the good Samaritan? Well, we are the priests and the Levites and the robbers. We are not the perfect examples. We both do bad things and we don't do good things. And we have to be honest with ourselves that we are like this. And why are we like this? Because we are the man on the side of the road. We have sin. And there's nothing that we bring to God saying, God, look how beautiful I am. Look how much I have to give. No, he rescues us when we are filthy and in a state of we are going to die if he doesn't do something. And because he saves us, now who are we? We are the good Samaritans who go out pointing people back to the great Samaritan. So let's, let's, end, let's end this story by answering the lawyer's question. How do we get eternal life? Well, Jesus tells us of the impossible standard. Just love God and love others perfectly. And we cannot do that. He did do that. And so then the only way to get eternal life is very simple. It is through the great Samaritan. And that's who we're going to be pointing people back to because we can't save anyone. And we really, and he is the example of who we are going to be like. And so because he saved us, now as the church, we will go out. And we will go to the orphans and the hungry and the lost, and the rejected, and the embarrassing, and the refugee. We're going to take this gospel to the lost, and not in our own name, because our own name doesn't mean much, but we're going to do it in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, now I would like to switch and transition to telling you just a little bit about our story, about Caitlin and mine's story, uh, of just how she reached out to someone and a big theme of this is, uh, you know, watch out when you reach out to somebody, because sometimes uh, it can get out of control. So, um, my wife was a kindergarten teacher, and she uh, had, in her kindergarten class, there were 22 students, uh, 16 of them didn't speak English, and they didn't speak Spanish. And so, she didn't really know what to do with them, but she started helping them kind of after school learn the ABCs and phrases like stand up and sit down, and they didn't know anything. And then she went to one family's apartment, um, and that's where she found out, oh, these are Somalians. And this is back in 2006. And so then she comes running home, and we are 21 years old in our one-bedroom apartment, a couple of months married, and she comes busting in the door, and she says, Cameron, guess what? They're refugees. And my response was not good. It was... Uh, uh, oh no, like, do we need to report them to the government? <laughs> because, you see, I didn't know anything about refugees as a 21-year-old. Um, and it wasn't until much later that, that, I, that I found out uh, what I'm about to tell you. So here's what I've learned. Now I'm 34, we have four kids. We're... But here's what I found out since 21 to 34. I'm just going to catch you up to speed. 
So uh, the refugee uh, program started unofficially uh, during World War II with uh, families that were like uh, America's favorite refugee family, uh, the Von Trapp family from Sound of Music. Um, it's the refugee family that we can all relate with and sing with. Um, and so then, but the program officially started after Vietnam um, in the 1970s. And at that time, it was a five-year resettlement program. Um, and then, uh, and, and so currently, let's say that there's someone in Sudan uh, and there's fighting in Sudan. Well, that's, that Sudanese person will then run out of Sudan into a neighboring country that is more stable. So if you're in Sudan, you might then go into uh, Kenya. And in Kenya, uh, oh, nice, they got flat on me. Uh, and <laughs> they found me. Um, and then in Kenya, uh, there are refugee camps there on the border that are supported by the United Nations. And there they register, and then they sit and they wait. Maybe it's for six months, for one year, for two years, for 10 years, for 35 years. The average refugee that's in America waited in the camp at least five years. So they go, they run into the camp, but one of the last lines of Sound of Music, I'm sure you all remember it, um, <laughs> is uh, Liesl asking Maria, do we ever get to come back here? Because they live in this beautiful place with a giant house and beautiful gardens do we ever get to come back to the land of our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers? And Maria's last line to her is, gosh, I hope so. And this is what everyone who's running out of their land, this is, what, this is what almost all of them are wanting. They want the fighting to stop so that they can go back home. And so they sit and they wait, but after enough time, it looks like the conflict will never end or that their place will never be the same, is that then 1% of refugees will then be moved to a third country location. This might be Australia or Canada or uh, America or uh, other countries. And traditionally, since the 1970s, America has taken about 64% of that 1%. The other 99% either stay in the camps, integrate into Kenya, the new country, or go back into the old country. So Dallas uh, is the second largest city for refugees, uh, re for refugees in the United States. Um, we boast over 200,000, that's conservative estimates, over 200,000 refugees in the greater Dallas area. And many people ask why. Um, and it's because we have uh, jobs here. And uh, just like it's negative it's 8 in St. Paul right now, it's not negative 8 here. And so if they get put in St. Paul and suddenly they look outside and it's negative 8, they're like, hey, how's Dallas going? Um, and so then there'll be internal migration that brings them here. And also there's critical mass. So if you only knew 1,000 people that spoke your language, um, then you would, you would move to that. And they all lived in like the same area of one city. You'd move to that city too. And so, uh, so now if you can kind of understand from that uh, and for the nations does not bring them over the oceans. There's then government agencies, government nonprofits that then bring them over the ocean and bring them here um, or other places and they'll move here. So Dallas is the second largest city for refugee resettlement. And someone who wasn't in the first service, what do you think the first city is? That's right, it's Houston. I know it's what all of you were thinking. And so Texas wins when it comes to our refugees coming here. And just like with any new community, like we can respond in being like, oh, I don't know what to do with them and that's really scary and what if they change me and what if they affect me and my family? But as Christians, we actually get to flip that on its head and we say, no, that's an opportunity. 
people from all over the world who have never heard the gospel are coming right next door, and I just have to be scared, I just have to not be scared enough to just go over and point them to the Great Samaritan. Okay, so if you can understand how a refugee gets from the middle of Sudan to Richardson, you know more than like 99% of most people. Um, So, good. Um, Okay, so back to our story. The... Um, so, Caitlin started helping uh, some children uh, after school and kindergartners, and then the parents started getting help from her. And then uh, she started this little preschool over the summer because she's like, these kids are already so far behind. Um, but at the preschool, she's then, she then also said, you know what, we're getting, they really need these skills of English. They have a lot of problems, but we're also going to teach the Bible because it's the most important thing we could ever tell anyone. And I was a a seminary student at DTS at the time. And of course, my response is, you better watch out. Like, I don't know if I'd do that if I were you. Like, that sounds pretty dangerous. Um, And so, so, because we're all thinking it. Like, half of them are Muslim, and you're not supposed to do that. Um, And so she's like, no, it'll be fine. And then I remember when I got the phone call, this back in, of her saying, hey, the moms all approached me today. And I was like, well, here it comes. And she's like, and they all said they want the exact same thing. I was wrong. Um, And so then she started meeting. We started renting a house in the area. And then uh, she started having about six to seven women come and and learn and practice their English. They didn't know how to write their names, certainly not read the notes that were coming home from school. Um, And so uh, so, so the six women would meet in our living room. But if you're going to help the six women in the evening, then who also do you need to help? The children, that's right. And so in the living room, there'd be six women, but in the dining room, there'd be about 25 to 30 children. And this is where DBC stepped in, and they said, okay, well, we'll volu- like, so volunteers that were members here came over, and so then I would come in from seminary with my little briefcase, and I would look into my dining room, and it would be a, a chaos, and just the volunteers there with, with big eyes. And then I would look into the quiet room of my wife sitting uh, there, and then I would go into my bedroom and close the door and think, and think that is a wonderful ministry that she has over there. I'm really just going to encourage and just love her through that. <laughs> and, so, and so then I... I, I uh, so then it wasn't until one evening that, uh, that we, she had this big meal for all of these uh, at a program, and all of these men came out. And then that's when I was like, oh, man. And I remember saying to her, like, I was like, man, you really have to find a guy who will help you here. <laughs> and, and part of this was I was an associate youth pastor at the time, part-time, and I had this lovely job where people pay you to do it. Um, and so... Uh, and I really saw, like, that's my ministry. <clears throat> this isn't my area. And so, uh, and that's so easy to do, right? To be like, oh, that's a great thing that you guys are doing. Um, and so, anyway, it was at this meal, and someone's like, hey, Mr. Mullins, how's your family? And I was like, oh, I can do this. And so then I quit my job here. And, you know, there was like 10 applications in for that associate youth pastor job that you could have while you're in seminary. It was awesome. Um, and there was no one applying for this job to help out in this area of Dallas. It wasn't the Vickery Meadows area. This is up where Garland and Dallas and Richardson all come together. And so this is northeast Dallas up closer to Richland College. Vickery Meadows area gets a lot of attention, uh, but there are thousands of refugees not in that area. 
Um, anyway, so, uh, so there was nobody doing stuff up there, and we lived up there, and so that's when I quit my job and started raising support, uh, which DBC then stepped in to support me as well. And so then in 2011, we started the nonprofit. We had a lot of names uh, that we tried, but we ended up going with the longest one. And so the name of our ministry is For the Nations Refugee Outreach. Um, it's a long name, but the ministry takes a long time to do. Um, and so anyway, then, um, then the things just started to get bigger because what we didn't understand was we thought, oh, there's a couple of kids that need help. But it wasn't. There was thousands thousands and thousands and thousands that were already there, and then more were coming in. And this is long before it was a political issue. It was just nobody knew. Nobody knew that Dallas was such a rich, uh, rich opportunity field for these refugees. And so then we started having ESL programs, um, and then uh, this crazy thing happened where people started coming to us being like, hey, I'd like to raise support to come and work with you guys. And I was like, really? Um, okay, that's crazy. But uh, so currently, uh, okay, so now, fast forward to now. Uh, so for the nations, we pretty much provide three things. We provide educational services, family services, and the gospel. And so we have, serv we have ESL classes um, for about five to 600 adults uh, and children every day. Um, and then we also have GED, and we also have citizenship classes and computer classes and, and other things like this. We have after-school tutoring, um, and we step into a lot of the needs when, uh, of, of providing that basic education because the school systems, the kids get put into their grades based on uh, age, not based on what they know. Um, and so we step in to try to, to fill in that gap. Um, we also provide family services, and so when you're helping people that are uh, in poverty, that don't speak the language, that have been through trauma, you know their issue isn't just ABCs. Their issues are everything, right? Like, how do I apply for this? How do I fill out this application? Um, I'm being audited. Um, I got scammed by a credit card paper that looked like a, that looked like a, that looked like legitimate, but was actually an advertisement. So there's all of these issues of family services and that we get to step into. And if we were a government agency, you might call us them caseworkers. Uh, if, we were a, um, if we were a school, you might call them guidance counselors. Uh, if we were your neighborhood, you might call them your buddies. But at everything we do, at every program that we have, we present the gospel. And so we have English classes. So our morning classes are four days a week, Monday through Thursday. We have 45 minutes of English, 20 minutes of Bible, 45 minutes of English every day. Um, and people said, no one will come if you have Bible in there, because we still run about 60% Islamic. So Hal and Zaina there were some of the first kindergartners. Um, they're still in the program, but now they're seniors in high school going off to college. They are members of their churches. They're leaders in their Bible studies. Uh, they're some of the first known uh, Christians of their people group, the Somali Bantu group. Um, this is the opportunities that we have right over there. And so just real quick with the map, um, I have one side of a map, and and, and part of my goal this morning is to see if I can get you to move from this yellow dot up there, that yellow square, over to the green square. Um, and that's it. Um, and that green square in that area, there's about 70,000 refugees in, that, in where the lines are. And that green square is where our school, oh, so I should say. So we, uh, we, we had so many students and then so many more that we were just turning away hundreds of people that were begging, can I please come to your class? Even though they... they 
they're, they're Muslim, many of them, or, or confused Christians, and, and we, they're getting to hear the Bible. And so what we ended up doing about three years ago is uh, we started building a building, that we, uh, a school for refugees, and we actually just finished it back in August that we're able to meet in. Um, and this allows us to serve about seven to 800 refugees uh, a day, and uh, with about 3,000 over the course of a year. So... I would love for you to volunteer with us if you have daytime hours or after school hours. We have lots of programs. You can talk, we can talk more out there because we have a really great way to, um, to help people to reach out to your, to your neighbor. And so I would love it if you served with us. I think we're pretty cool. <laughs> but you don't have to. Your neighbor is all around you, Right? It's all the people that you have difficulty getting along with, the people that are easy and the people that are hard, from your families to the refugees to the ends of the earth. This is who Christ, the great Samaritan, has called us to go out to. And what we're going to be doing is pointing them back to him. So it's not about for the nations. It's not about the missionaries. It's about the work that we get to do, not because we're really good and and really... um, excellent at how we present, or really great speakers. No, we get to do it because Christ has redeemed us and he has sent us out. And so that means the only way that hearts are going to be changed isn't through this frail, poor example. The only way that hearts will be changed is by the Holy Spirit. And so let's pray and thank you so much. Father, thank you for loving us Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to come down into our dirt, to take on flesh with fingernails and toenails, and to become like us so that he could reach out and save us. Father, thank you that by the Holy Spirit you've given us faith. And Father, please continue to do that and give us faith that your message and your good news is still going out to the world through your church. In the name of your Son and by your Holy Spirit, amen.